You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're highlighting work from our summer print issue, The Money Issue. For the issue, writer Bonnie Amor looked at the racial and gender politics of the fair trade movement. In this interview, she talks to Bitch Media Associate Editor Amy Lamb about her article, Spend and Save, The Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saviorism. Hi, Bonnie. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited too. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, of course. Um, so I really admire your work and like have been following you for a long time. And I was just so stoked when you had pitched a great piece for the magazine. But before we talk about that piece, um, I guess I just want to talk more about your background. And so you have a blog. It's called Everywhere All the Time, Decolonizing mm-hmm. Travel Culture. And I wanted to for you to talk a little bit more about like why is it important to decolonize travel culture and what does it look like to decolonize travel culture that's a great question that's the question of of everything of all the work um decolonizing travel culture is for me it's it's a question it's like how how do we look critically at the business of tourism and how it its relationship its historical relationship and present his relationship to imperialism and colonialism, how does that affect people of color who not only travel, but who depend on the tourism industry as workers and laborers, usually cheap labor and menial labor? What is what is the relationships between these workers, these communities um, who often experience um, and sort of an occupation, like a presence, like an occupation of foreigners, of Westerners, of mostly white people, um, coming into their communities uh, and shifting the local economies, the local culture, um, and how those communities relate to their culture. Um, many times, you know, indigenous cultures and, um, you know, backpackers or other tourists, they like to go places where it's cheap for them to travel, even though they have the money to travel another way. So that that shifts uh, how indigenous people relate to their cultures and if they have to kind of perform them in order to make a buck. Um, so all of that creates very problematic, you know, um, uh, uh, effects for those people, these communities and, um, and that industry, it relies on that money that it relies on all that oppression to keep going. Travel writing is the story of that industry. It's the story of tourism. And historically it's been the story of conquistadors uh, colonizers, it quote unquote explorers coming into these lands and those notebooks, you know, those old, uh, field notes from the colonizers. That's really, a lot of people will argue that that's not the birth of travel writing because there is, um, you know, there are other, there, there's lesser known stories of people of color or of other people doing journeys, uh, back then that weren't, you know, fucked up. But as far as, um, as these writings go, the, you know, current, if you open up, you know, Condé Nast Traveler or something else, like it won't look, it won't sound that different from those notebooks. So that's an issue. And it's, it's not really talked about in a big way. If you have travel writing, a lot of people writing these things are, you know, they have the power to be a tourist. And that is just not available and accessible for a lot of people, especially people of color. Um, even if we are from, you know, the quote unquote Western world or, you know, quote unquote developed places. Um, and even for travels of color in other places, uh, the politics of us moving around the world is is more fraught with with other with these other you know power relations that have different effects that just you know the 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 what is quote unquote the norm traveler white dude uh, or whatever from the U.S. or whatever 
um, we have totally different um, experiences traveling. There are more, there, there, there are different, you know, ramifications of us moving around the world. And then the other side of that is um, of people of color who, who travel, but we don't call that travel, right? We call that tourism. You know, there's migration, there's, there's refugees, there's forced migration. All of these things are happening in conjunction with uh, the story that is travel writing that really supports the industry of tourism. So um, all of that, if for me, you know, getting to, to deep into these issues, into these questions and challenging those power structures is um, a big part of decolonizing travel culture, as well as kind of reclaiming the voice of who is telling the story about these places around the world. Yeah, I think that's why I've just always really appreciated your work so much because uh, often when we think about like mainstream travel culture, it's uh, it's very white centered. And I really appreciate your work because you're looking at like the intersection of race, travel, class and nationality. And you do it in such a way that's um, uh, that I haven't like really read before that was accessible to me. So I just really mm-hmm. appreciated your work. I just want to thank you. <laughs> um, and so uh, I was so excited when you write, wrote this piece for our latest issue, the money issue called Spend and Save the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saverism. And in this piece, um, for folks who haven't read it yet, you should pick up a copy. <laughs> it's it's so I, I was so excited when you pitched this because it really um, kind of put into words and had a, a deep analysis of the issues that I felt about like fair trade industries and like fair trade markets or branding, uh, but I didn't have the all, all the right words and uh, to express my feeling about them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, what fair trade is and what does it mean within like the larger consuming marketplace? Fair trade is generally supposed to be a way to um, equal the equal the the, econ- the global economic workforce, uh, equalize it so that people in disadvantaged quote-unquote countries are making uh, a living wage um, in comparison to people in you know in in countries where the living where the wages. Um, a little fair, higher, obviously. Um, so yeah, it's just about paying people what they, you know, what they deserve, what they, what they can live off of in the place that they're in. Um, and and um, in, and in your piece, uh, like the companies that you pro- that you highlight, and I, I don't even want to say highlight because they're like you're, yeah, are, that, you're, that you're low lighting. Um, um, they often are like you know, websites and organizations and companies that are run by white women where they um, sell handicrafts or clothing made by women of color um, from the global South. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted you to talk about like what influenced you to tackle this specific topic. Um, what influenced me was my experiences. I mean, I'm Ecuadorian. Uh, I, I'm also Guatemalan. Um, indigenous culture history, you know, present is, is a much, it's a big part of my life as a person who is diasporic first generation immigrant. And when I see these, these shops or ads or whatever websites for these, um, you know, fair trade companies that are supposed to, that, you know, the story is usually, you know, we're, we're going to sell you these wonderful, you know, culturally important uh, handicrafts made by these collectives usually of women of color in, you know, what's usually the global South or in Asia. And, and they're going to make more money. They're going to be able to sustain themselves. They're going to get more empowerment that, you know, that women need that, you know, 
uh, that they're not getting otherwise because they lived in such an uncivilized and unequal, you know, place. Um, it's just like, huh? You know, I, I always like, you know, my ears prick up. Like, I'm, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, just the, just the goal that is kind of like, we're gonna, we're gonna involve ourselves and we're gonna help people. Um, when, when that's coming from white people or a lot of white women who own these companies a lot of the time, um, it's, I, I'm hesitant. I'm, I, I'm like, I want to know more. So that made me want to research this uh, subject and these companies a lot more, um, as well as, you know, this, this story that they put forth that is just, um, you know, using that savior narrative. It's just invoking that historical narrative that, you know, humanitarians use, NGOs use, um, governments use. It, it, but right now it's a, in this, um, in this uh, market, it's a capitalist thing. So um, using that savior narrative that is, you know, used to kind of like defend military intervention and all these other things that we know that have, you know, historically not been helping these communities, um, doing it in this capitalistic market in the name of female empowerment, uh, it, it's, it's really uh, concerning. And, you know, when I looked into it, it's, you know, I had good reason to think why. There's this... I mean, your piece is full of really great quotes. Um, but one of this that speaks to what you're talking about now is this quote where you where the piece says, the presumptuousness of claiming you can, quote, eradicate poverty and gender inequality by selling bracelets to yuppies exposes one fallacy of corporate feminism, that leaning into capitalism can heal the symptoms of the system without actually challenging it, um, which which is the entire uh like fair trade branding it's like if Mm -hmm. you if you buy this then uh these brown and black women will have better lives without questioning uh what it means to live under a capitalist system that um Mm -hmm. harms them and so that which leads me to another great quote in your piece uh where you say quote the central paradox of fair trade capitalism relies on inequity to keep these shops open Uh, so Mm -hmm. like you know my mind imploded a little bit there (laughs) because (laughs) because you know your thesis is that um the reason why these shops are open is because the very machine that drives capitalism that drives you to go shop at these shops is what is keeping um like these these people in these situations uh oppressed in their way Mm -hmm. as well as the mentality like you have to be in the mentality that i have i have something to offer or i have a way of thinking that these people don't because if they did, then they would be able to do it themselves. Or I'm, you know, I'm endowed with some sort of power, but I haven't searched and seen why do I have more power than these people, you know? Um, so just that narrative that it takes to to be in that space that you go to a shop and be like, oh, I am going to help these people. You know, that's something historical. That's something daily that uh, a lot of these women who not only start these companies, but shop from them, um, they believe in that, you know? Another really great quote from your piece uh, you point out that the bodies of women of color are hyper visible while remaining invisible, seen but not known. That really sort of um, helped me to like visualize what you're saying because often in these types of fair trade stores, like on their websites, they it's it feels like they're using women of color as props to sell these products that ostensibly help them, um, but then we don't know anything about them usually beyond just the fact that they're a person of color living in a developing country. Absolutely. A lot of the times they don't have names, but there's a lot of research on this. Um, 
they've done research to see how people react to the images, to the names, how much of the story that they need. Because a big part of a lot of these websites, um, these companies who have their websites where people can buy these things off of, um, is you know just giving a little blurb. And those blurbs of the workers, the artisans, the women are they're almost all the same. They're just so identical that you get the idea that they don't they don't really think of these people as people as who have, you know, totally different lives and personalities and are facing different um, kinds of oppression and just different difficulties in their lives. It's just like this one woman, you know, the global South worker, you know, and the sexism that she experiences um, through capitalism. It's just um, it's it's very sad, you know, and it's like it's just it's meant to be like this sappy image. Um, that gets, you know, white people and their white guilt, you know, it monetizes it and they capitalize off of that. So what can people do to sort of support uh, marginalized folks, but without supporting this system of capitalism? <laughs> That's, it's super difficult. Right? <laughs> I was like, tell me, how do you make world peace? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's huge because I think some of these um, critiques of these companies might seem, you know, that that whole the thesis that, you know, that, that they have to, you know, be involved in the system of capitalism in order to free them of the same thing and how that doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it's it's just one part of it. Right. And it, it's very simple. But the thing is that there could be other ways. There are like other options and all, other alternatives. And I think not all of these companies are are totally shitty and are trying to be fair to their artisans in how they communicate their stories and their lives and how much they pay them, etc. Um, but in general, just this um, humanitarian by way of capitalism um, uh, work, it, it market, it's it's going to be you know automatically a fail um, because you're setting up the people that you're trying to help in you know without dignity they're there's there's like they don't they're not that empowered it's like something we're going to give to them not something they're going to claim for themselves so for me you know the answer is always activism how can we support women in their local struggles in these different parts of the world and how do we um as people diasporic or however white people in the western world or the quote-unquote first world how can we support that and not omit um, the political uh, ramifications of our presence in these places and how we, you know, involve ourselves in their local economies. How can we support them economically without intervening? That's always going to be, you know, an issue at this time in the world where so much damage has been done. Um, so you want to, if you know, if you want to get some, you know, crafts made by these women and actually support them, you have to do a little bit of digging and find something um, that you think seems trustworthy, you know, that treats them with dignity. And it's not just some white woman making a few bucks off of it um, and supporting their local struggles. That was writer Bonnie Amore talking with editor Amy Lamb. Bonnie's article in the summer print issue of Bitch is called Spend and Save, the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saviorism. 